0: howdy hello how are you i'm all right how are you guys doing doing well so all right so it's just going to be me and you today so it'll be nice and quaint very good so let me just get this ready all right Software is recording perfect all right well we'll just make this fairly easy simple Uh, not too hard.
1: How long an interview do you plan on doing?
0: Um, we can go about 15 minutes. Is that okay? Or do you want to go a little bit longer? If that's what you want, that's fine. We can do 15, 20 minutes. Whatever works for you. Okay.
1: I mean, I can usually burn 15 minutes on uh, one question, so I'll try to be succinct. If you want to go short, I will try to be more succinct.
0: It's no problem. I mean, if you do Wander More, that's fine. We can go over that. I just like... Put okay. that time frame out there, and if we go over, that's fine. Um, I just There's some people that are like, oh, got 15 minutes, and they want to make it short and, and sweet. So if we go over, that's not a problem. So alright All right. So we'll get started. All right, everyone, welcome to the show. We have author David Mack on today to talk about his book that is out called The Midnight Front. Uh, If you don't know who David is, maybe you do, because he is really well known for his Star Trek novels. uh, Which, I have to admit, I'm not a big fan of Star Trek. I'm more Star Wars. But my father is a huge Star Trek fan, and he's actually a little jealous that I'm getting to talk to you today. Because he's read several of your books. Maybe I should be talking to him. (laughs) Um, But this book is kind of a little bit different and kind of kind of a change in gears because you've gone from Star Trek, which you're really well known for to kind of a fantasy book that's set just before world war II. So my question is why did you decide to go here in this point in time and kind of go like with an alternate history type take?
1: Well, uh, first of all, I just wanted to move as far away from Star Trek as I could. Okay. I wanted to do something that was entirely mine and I wanted to challenge expectations. I didn't want to just try to do Star Trek with the serial numbers filed off. If I was going to do that, I might as well just continue writing for Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, so what fascinated me about this particular period of history is that it has always felt to me like a turning point in the tide of human events. And that was why it just felt like a natural place to set a story that was epic in nature, particularly... A war epic. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're going to do a war epic, there's no war more epic than the Second World War. Right. At least not so far. So, uh, one small question it's not alt history, it's secret history. Okay. And the difference between the two is that in alt history, you can change the outcome of events, both great and uh, personal. Whereas with secret history, the idea is that the narrative is folded into and tracks in line with established history. So this is not an alt-history book. This is a secret history. The idea is that all of this could have occurred behind the scenes of the real war that we know.
0: I like that. That's that's. I like that. I, I really do. So you have taken World War II, which I have to admit, yeah, is kind of the the change of history. I mean, we had the Manhattan Project. We had the atomic bomb. There's so many horrific and yet amazing things that happened uh during the war but now you have your main character which is uh becoming a sorcerer uh so magic mm-hmm. is being involved here and how does that play i mean we've kind of seen a little bit of interesting stuff like with the captain america movie where you know he's made into captain america and running around but we didn't see magic like mm-hmm. you, you have in the book so what was that like bringing that in to this war
1: well, it's interesting that you should mention Captain America, and that uh, that was one of my prime influences, one of my prime inspirations, if you will. Uh, in fact, I listened to the Captain America soundtrack quite often mm. while working on this book, and the idea for the magic that grew out of you know things like the fact that the Nazis. Uh, Were particularly Hitler, were reputed to have a longstanding fascination with all things occult. They were fascinated with uh, ceremonial magic. They were fascinated with stories of the Holy Grail, uh, the Spear of Destiny, things like that. And the idea that uh, magic could be involved partly came to me from stories that Hitler had an astrologer who would give him advice based on what the stars would seem to indicate were favorable courses of action. And Churchill, on the other side, though he did not personally believe in astrology, he said, he employed a team of astrologers so that they could tell him as best they could what they believed Hitler's astrologers were telling him. Because he figured if Hitler did believe in astrology – Then maybe if he could figure out what astrology was going to be telling Hitler, that they could use that information to get a leg up on him. So I took this notion and I said, all right, let's assume that there was also some truth to the fact that occult elements played a part in the war. It's known that Aleister Crowley and some of his Thalema friends were reputed to have tried to protect certain areas of London during the Blitz using ceremonial magic. So I said, okay, if that's the case, let's assume that because the Nazi uh, party uh, originated out of an occult society known as Tula Gesellschaft or the Tula Society, if that's the case, let's assume the Tula Society is actually black magic, that they were practicing real ceremonial black magic. If it worked, what would the Allies have done? in response and it seems pretty obvious that if they were willing to listen to astrologers in order to uh, counter hitler that they would have been just as willing to create their own black magic top secret warfare initiative to counter nazi black magicians yeah so that was the uh the basic premise was if hitler's going to employ black magicians we're going to employ black magicians whatever he does we're going to try and match him one for one and uh then beyond that, the system of magic uh, is taken mostly from uh, Renaissance-era grimoires, okay. uh, documents like the uh, Claviculus Salomonis Regis, the Sworn Book of Honorius. Uh, a lot of the rituals and the specific details of demonic magic are taken from A.E. Waite's Book of Black Magic and Pax, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So I had a lot of public domain sources for how the basic principles of magic operate and then i grafted onto that my own uh invention something that i developed with my friend aaron rosenberg a concept called yoking where a black magician summons a demon and the idea is that demons are the foundation of all magic from the smallest trick to the grandest miracle so for yoking a black magician calls up a demon and then forcibly binds that demon to him or herself And for as long as the magician is able to hold the demon in thrall, the magician can wield that demon's unique abilities as if they were the magician's own. So if you call up a demon whose talents are with fire and you yoke it and you hold it, uh, you know, bound to yourself, painful as that is for as long as you can hold it, you can throw fire Hmm. and maybe be immune to fire and things like that. So, And then, of course, to make it so that this was not going to completely destabilize the narrative, I imposed strict costs and consequences. Uh, Holding a demon in this manner is remarkably painful. It causes things like nosebleeds, migraine headaches, uh, indigestion. It leads to things like uh, nightmares, insomnia, self-destructive behavior like hair pulling, self-cutting, suicidal thoughts. And as a result, most magicians who practice this kind of battle magic have to drink heavily and use opiates and chain smoke and do whatever it is that calms their nerves and keeps the voices quiet so they can focus and do what they do. So it uh, makes it for a more cinematic style of magic, but it also makes it one that takes a very heavy toll on those who dare to use it.
0: Yeah, no, uh, (laughs) wow. Wow. I can almost envision that one kind of creepy guy that you see at the beginning of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, it goes after. Delac. Yeah. Um, him being one of those guys. Uh, as you Definitely. Were just describing this. Uh, I mean, that that's fascinating. Now, the question I have is how much research did you have to put in to kind of delve through all these books uh, of magics in that to kind of finally say, this is what I want for my my magic system.
1: Well, this book involved years of research of every kind. There was historical research, not only into the specific details of World War II, Mm -hmm. all the battles, uh, facts regarding the Holocaust. Uh, I made in-person visits to the National World War II Museum in New Orleans and to the National Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., I read lots of books. I picked up books on soldier slang so that I would know which bits of military slang were specific to World War II and then which ones were specific to Korea and Vietnam so that I didn't use those. Um, And then as far as the magic system, uh, a lot of those old grimoires and ceremonial magic texts are available for free online. But I had a bit of a head start on them what brought them to my attention and what got me interested in using that style of magic in a semi-realistic manner in a work of fiction was that it had been done before in 1968 by James Blish in a novel called black Easter. And the basic premise of black Easter is that a black magician is hired by a jaded wealthy arms dealer, who wants to release all the demons of hell for one night on the earth with no restrictions and no instructions, just to see what will happen. And I'm sure you can imagine that goes just about as well as you think it would. Yeah. Uh, But it's not an action-heavy novel, believe it or not. In fact, it's very much a philosophical novel. It's very much uh, a rigorous procedural uh, piece where there's a number of tests. They do a number of rituals as proof of concept just to see what they're dealing with. And as a result, Blish, uh, who was working from a lot of these same public domain sources about black magic and ceremonial magic showed what it would be like if that kind of magic really worked the way it says it does at a level of scientific rigor, the, the level of attention to detail that would be required on the part of sorcerers working in the modern day to make it happen. And I always found that fascinating. And because of the level of detail that he put into it and the seriousness with which he treated the subject matter, that made it feel more real. It gave it a verisimilitude that made it all the more frightening because it seemed plausible, uh, just due to the level of, uh, attention to detail that he had. So that was really one of my biggest inspirations for this book was that ever since, I was, uh, you know, a, a young teenager some 30-odd years ago. Reading this book, uh, that book terrified me. And as a result, I'd always wanted to do something like it, something inspired by it, but something also uniquely my own. So I took that basic idea and I made it more cinematic and I structured it into a period piece slash war epic.
0: Yeah. No, I... it. it. Looks and sounds like exactly that. I mean, this is something we could easily see on the movie screen. Uh, even though Well, it would be
1: better as an HBO series. But,
0: probably, you know. yeah, because then you have the length. You don't have to cram a whole war into a
1: Also, if you were to gut this down to something that could run in two and a half hours, it wouldn't work. I, I think that you'd have to lose so many of the interlocking storylines that it wouldn't pay off.
0: All right, well, you know, Game of Thrones will end soon, and there, here's the next thing.
1: That's my hope. Uh, that is my hope. HBO, if you're listening, uh, please get in touch with my agent.
0: Yeah. No. I mean, the cover itself just begs you to pick this book up. I mean, you have—you don't even see the guy's face, but he's his back is turned to you. He's in uh, full uniform and he World has, War II battle combat gear, yeah, yeah. and he's and he's holding what, at least to me, looks like a, a wand. And there—that's exactly right. Li- light wrapping around it but the rest of the cover is kind of dark except for this light which is kind of whitish and blue and it just says pick me up and read me and you know just a little tagline every war has a se- has secret weapons man
1: that was my editor he came up with that I was very happy with him for that tagline
0: yeah I mean it's, it's just like you see the picture and then you read that and you're like oh man now I need to read this book because I want to know every secret so uh, you, you guys did a fantastic job.
1: Yeah, I'm really – I have to say the tour uh, publishing team did such an amazing job on the production of this book. From Larry Rostant, the artist who did the cover art, to the art direction that came from Irene Gallo and the art department at tour, the ideas that came from my editor. My editor came up with the original idea for the cover that Larry uh, executed, then my editor came up with the tagline, uh, the art department at tour – did a beautiful job on the interior layout of the book. They developed this nifty little sort of icon that is used on the front cover for the, for the part that says a dark arts novel. Yes. They picked up that art and they propagated it through the interior of the book for the for the numbers on the chapter headings.
0: Yeah, I saw that. Which,
1: yeah, it's a really nice touch. And they also did a nice job. I don't know if you're looking at like an early arc or a finished printed copy. Uh, the early arcs don't have the maps, but there's going to be these really pretty maps that they uh that they made showing where the major locations of action and story development are both there's going to be two maps one is Great Britain and then the other is greater Europe.
0: Yeah, I was actually just looking at those maps. So uh fantastic job on these and these I thought that was a nice touch. I'm like, "Oh, now I'm going to be able to see where everything happened." And then you have a nice little glossary in the back that kind of mm-hmm. goes over some things. So uh you know, it's fantastic. They did a great job, I agree. Um, you know, you don't have to question. You don't have to go, oh, where is that? You can just flip to the back and look at the maps. Um, Precisely. Just because... What's a,
1: what is a fantasy novel without a map?
0: Yeah. Well, not only that, because it is, you know, Europe and stuff like that, we are used to it. But we're not used to knowing, oh, this battle happened there. Because, I mean, how many times did, you know, certain places change names and mm-hmm. boundaries and everything Since then. um... I mean,
1: people may have a vague idea of what the Battle of Stalingrad means, but not a lot of people could instantly pick it out on a map and say, it's right here on the map. When you realize where it is and how far apart things really are, and just over how great a distance this uh, war sprawled, uh, it becomes really astounding. And this is just the European theater. I didn't even touch the Pacific theater of war.
0: Wow. Now... Because it says a dark arts novel, um, and at the, the end you have kind of a, a preview of the next book, uh, mm-hmm. which comes out in winter of 2019, how many books do you see in this series? Is it going to be three, five? I mean, What are you looking at?
1: It's not clear. Uh, the original contract was for three books. Okay. And I'm working on book three at the moment. If the uh, series sells well enough, uh, then Tor will probably want to extend the contract. The idea was to make a series that could be Mm open-ended, that could go for as long as people want to continue reading these stories. My idea was to tell at least one completed arc by the end of three books. But I've been asked by my editor to at least write up one-page descriptions of books four, five, and six. Uh, just in case we get the green light and he wants to move ahead. So part of the idea for the series is that uh, with each book, we jump to a different year, a different era of 20th century geopolitical history, something that feels uh, distinct each time. So uh, in addition to that, Each book is also going to be a different kind of book because I didn't want to just write war epic after war epic. I didn't want to go World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, etc. So, the idea of book two, The Iron Codex, is that it is set in 1954 and it's going to be a Cold War era spy thriller. Nice. Uh, And so, it's going to be structured very differently, whereas the first book happens over a period of six years. The second book happens over a period of about 52 days. And book three, which I'm working on right now, is set in 1963, right after the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And the idea there is that that's going to be a conspiracy piece. Um, Not even so much a spy novel as a conspiracy thriller. It's It's more like Three Days of the Condor than a James Bond movie, if you take my meaning. Yeah. And then beyond that, uh, ideas that I've spoken about with my editor, if the series continues beyond book three, then book four, I'm thinking, would be set in the uh, early to mid-1970s in New York City, would probably be a crime thriller of some sort. Uh, Book five would probably be set in the early 1980s and would be a corporate heist type thing. And then book six, probably set in either the late 80s or the early 90s, would be uh, maybe a revenge story of some sort. Mm. And I haven't decided exactly where that would be set, but there are a lot of possibilities. I could do it in the Balkan states. I could do it somewhere in Europe, uh, sort of looking at the uh, immediate aftermath of the fall of the Berlin Wall and how that changed the political climate there. Um, but there's a lot of different possibilities, a lot of different kinds of stories. The idea is that the series wants to reinvent itself with each book so that you never really know what you're getting book to book. And then part of the fun is that because of the nature of black magic, uh, when people make these initial deals with hell, they extend their lifespans. Uh, they buy like 700 years of life. And as a result, they age very slowly. So that if this did get adapted for TV, let's say, you could have the same actors you know, season to season, even though we're jumping ten years here, nine years there, jumping into different decades, the actors wouldn't seem to age very much uh, on purpose because of the nature of what they do as black magicians. Yeah. And it's great because it means you don't have to do ridiculous makeup, you don't have to uh, recast the actors, uh, you just have to change the costuming. Nice. So,
0: I, yeah. I, I like the idea that the next book is not a continuation of World War II stories. You're jumping around, and not all of them are war stories. Um, they're just moments in time where there happens to be black magic users that are manipulating or, or doing things. So that, that's even more intriguing than just, all right, that's part two of this war story. So I, You got it. That is fantastic.
1: I mean, I also wanted it as a challenge for myself. I didn't want to rope myself into just writing the same book over and over and over again. I didn't want it to be one object quest after another, one war story after another. Um, I, I wanted the challenge if I just you know sit down and say, okay, now write a different kind of book. You know, learn to write another kind of narrative yeah. with a different tone, a different pace, uh, different expectations. Um, and I want it as much as possible to be driven organically by the struggles of my characters, by the uh, the growth of my characters. I want the stories to serve the characters, um, you know, rather than the characters just being fitted in to serve a story.
0: Yeah. No, that's fantastic. Uh, I do really appreciate that. Uh, I mean, as as a reader... That's the one thing I really like is when you have, jump into a series and you don't know what to expect in the next book. Uh, you know, because you get those those series and you're there and you're like, all right, you know, well, okay, I kind of know what's going on here. And, and that's kind of boring. But when you get mm-hmm. a, a series where it's like you're jumping ahead 10, 20 years, you don't know what's going to happen next. But if it's still, you know, you have those similar characters and things like that. It still feel connected to it, but it's more exciting because you don't know what's happening next.
1: Yep. And uh, when you've got something as, uh, as rich a playground to play with as 20th century international politics and uh, military struggles and guerrilla warfare, I mean one of the ideas I had for book six might be late 1980s instead of early 90s and set it in Afghanistan – uh, when the mujahideen were, you know, fighting against the Russians back before the mujahideen turned into uh, ISIS and Al Qaeda and and everything else, back when we were using the U.S. was using them as proxy fighters against the Russians, and it occurred to me, you know, if there were stories of you know some crazy old hermit out there who's knocking helicopters out of the sky with fire from his hand, and that report gets back to the CIA, the CIA is going to look at that and go. Okay, so basically a a bunch of desert sheep herders uh, didn't know what to make of a guy with a rocket launcher. It will never occur to them to think, oh, that must mean there's a sorcerer wandering around in the mountains of Afghanistan. Yeah. So I could play with things like that where if the magic users had been forced out of high-tech society, out of the first world, due to the rise of the surveillance state and are now plying their lives – on the fringes of third world countries out in the middle of nowhere, they're mostly relying on both local myth and on the fact that people in the civilized countries are going to write off any firsthand account of what they do as local superstition. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, fueled by racism and, you know, the, the soft bigotry of low expectations. Um, I could have some fun with that and it could be both social commentary about how the first world treats the third world Um, but also have it be an organic piece of the narrative
0: sounds fantastic and i would love to read that
1: i would love to write that
0: so what was the catalyst that kind of made you decide hey i want to be a writer and what was the moment in that catalyst that that caused that
1: I can't really be sure as far as I can remember back into childhood, I wanted to be a writer. I loved books as a kid. I spent a lot of time in my local library growing up. My mom would drop me off there when she'd go grocery shopping and I would just be happy as a bug in a rug sitting around surrounded by books all afternoon. It was my favorite place in the world. And, uh, I remember when I was maybe nine or 10, I got my hands on some large sheets of paper and I would, draw imaginary book covers and i would put my name on them as a byline so i was fantasizing from like the age of nine about growing up and seeing my name on book covers and being a guy who wrote books and i started tapping away at the typewriter around the age of 10 or 11 or 12 just writing snippets semi-autobiographical stuff that nobody would ever want to read and But it was all just practice. It was just about learning to put words on paper. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I I would say I was born with the bug. According to my parents from a very young age, maybe the age of six or seven, I could watch a movie late at night on the black and white TV they let me keep in my room. And the next morning at breakfast, I could recount the entire plot of the movie I watched the night before. So apparently my brain was wired for story right from the very beginning. Wow. so I always gravitated to stories. I understood stories. I I love taking stories apart and re-examining them and putting them back together. Uh, I started trying to write fiction in uh, middle school. And uh, the bug just caught. Uh, I started submitting scripts to TV shows just on a lark when I was about 14. And, you know, that didn't pay off. I got rejection letters. But, you know, it. Even when I got rejection letters, I kept trying, and that showed my mom I was serious. And because of that, I was able to get into uh, community college screenwriting classes when I was a sophomore in high school. So I was taking college-level screenwriting classes while I was still in high school. That helped me get into film school. So I went to NYU Film, got my degree there. Probably about halfway through, around the end of my sophomore year, beginning of my junior year, was when I figured out that as much as I had harbored this fantasy of being a director, that really, at heart, I remained a writer. So I I kept my focus on writing. And during college and after college, I was submitting spec scripts to Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek Deep Space Nine because they had an open-door policy. And I collected a lot of rejections there until I teamed up with a new writing partner in 1994, a guy named John Ordover who at the time was the editor of the Star Trek books. And it was a fortuitous uh, pairing. He had the access we needed to pitch stories. I had the training we needed in order to write teleplays. And put the two of us together, we got some uh, sales right off the bat, got some scripts sold, got some writing credits. And that was my foot in the door at Star Trek in 1995. And although we didn't end up selling to TV again after that, that led to me doing a lot of work for the Star Trek books people through John, through Simon and Schuster. And that work has continued pretty much to this day. Uh, at this point, I've written 27 Star Trek novels. I've written maybe a dozen pieces of short Star Trek fiction from short stories to novellas. I've written for Star Trek comic books, uh, Star Trek on TV, Star Trek video games, Star Trek reference materials, um, So I've pretty much done everything for Star Trek except feature film and role-playing games at this point. Wow. But I've also written for a bunch of other franchises, 24, Wolverine, the 4400, Farscape. Um, And during most of that, during most of the early years of my career, I was also doing other writing-related work. I was a beat reporter, a crime reporter. Uh, I was a magazine and newspaper editor. I was a journalist. I covered everything from computers to uh, military equipment, uh, sports game day programs. Uh, You know, I pretty much just wrote whatever someone was willing to pay me for. And I ended up, after many years of that kind of work, around 2000, I was hired as the editor of Sci-Fi.com, the website of the Sci-Fi channel. And I was there for about eight years in that capacity uh, before I left to go full-time as a novelist.
0: Wow. I mean, that's you've kind of been everywhere, it sounds like, and you've kind of dipped your toe into like every possible science fiction uh, series out there. I mean, Farscape, I loved. That was a fantastic series. Uh, I mean, Star Trek is huge, and there's millions and millions of fans out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, 24 was a great TV series as well, so I mean, that's just amazing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've I've had some fun writing for different series. I would still love to work for Star Wars one of these days. I have great respect for the work they're doing over there. Would love to somehow get to be a part of that. I'd love to write for James Bond. Uh, if Lucasfilm ever decides to make new original Indiana Jones novels, I would love to write an Indiana Jones novel.
0: Oh, that would be amazing.
1: Yeah, do like a period piece. Find some new adventure for Indy to go on. Uh, So that would be fun. I'd love to do something like that. But mostly right now I'm just focused on working on the Dark Arts series. I'm trying to make book three the best it can be. I'm waiting for edits on book two so that we can finish revisions and get that into production and have that ready for this time next year. And if I'm really lucky, the series will continue beyond book three. And maybe this time next year I'll be hacking my way through an outline for book four
0: nice now the book comes out in, or is out in hardback trade paper ebook and audiobook correct
1: that is correct all uh, f- all four formats were scheduled for the release on the same day which is January 30 2018 so if this show is airing after January 30th the book is already out if this show airs before January 30th that's release date all right
0: now we're gonna um, I'm just gonna throw out one final question. Uh, it's been amazing talking with you. If you could give uh, an aspiring writer out there, young or old, just mm-hmm. one bit of advice, what would it be?
1: Uh, There's so many pieces of advice to give. <laughs> uh, it's hard to know what piece of advice is most useful to someone. I would say if I'm talking to somebody young and you're trying to figure out what you're doing with your life, I would say get a career that is not related to your fiction writing that you can do full time and then do your fiction on the side. Something that has a decent salary, benefits, insurance, whatnot. Um, Alternatively, if that's not immediately uh, open to you, marry well is all I can tell you. Um, I would not be here today had I not married well. Um, if it were not for my wife, Kara, I would be homeless. I'd be under a bridge somewhere. I'd probably be dead. Um, and the only reason I've been able to survive for 10 years as a freelance novelist and writer of other fictions is because of her support. Um, I spent 17 years in the corporate sector here in New York and I lived like a hermit, worked like a horse, and drank like a fish. Uh, but by the end of it, I had squirreled away a pretty significant stack of cash as a reserve. Uh, you know, basically as a, a bulwark against things going wrong. And uh, it wasn't until I felt like I had a couple of years' salary banked away, just you know tucked, uh, you know, safely as a cushion against disaster, that was when I finally let myself go full-time as a novelist. I said, I have to hit a certain annual threshold that I think I can maintain as far as income as a writer. I have to have X amount of money in the bank as a hedge against disaster, against something going wrong with this plan. And then I have to make sure that my wife is at a point in her career – where she'll be able to take up the role that I had provided. Basically, I supported her through grad school when she was changing careers. And then once she got out of grad school, she had good employment opportunities, good prospects. And that was what made all of this possible. It was a a long-term plan that took years to execute. But as a result, We've had, you know, 10 years now where she's been the primary worker in the household with the insurance and my income is the supplemental income and I've had good years and I've had lean years and then the last couple of years financially have just been brutal for a number of reasons that I, I won't go into, but there were a number of factors beyond my control that led to, you know, just a sudden, it was it was as if the spigot that controls my income got shut off. Ooh. And it just went away, and uh but it's only because, again, I spent seventeen years squirreling away cash and you know, multiple years planning ahead for this, that even though that happened, and it's been you know eighteen months coming up on two years uh of this sort of desert period, uh I feel like I'm nearing the end of that. I feel like things are about to start moving again. And things are gonna be okay. But if I hadn't spent all those years building that uh, bulwark against disaster, I feel like I'd be in real trouble right now.
0: Well that I mean that's fortuitous and great planning uh, on
1: your behalf. So um, I, so I guess I'd tell writers, you know, plan for disaster, don't go full time until you've set up a, a cushion, a financial cushion for yourself. make sure you've got some savings that you can uh, keep between you and disaster. Make sure you've got a plan to give yourself health insurance because if you don't take care of yourself, you can't work. Yeah. Uh, You know, the myth of the starving artist is one that should be taken out behind the barn and shot because you're not going to do good work when you're under extreme stress. In fact, extreme stress, except in the rarest of cases, uh, impairs the work. Yeah. Uh, So do what you can to protect yourself, save your money plan for the future, plan plan for disaster, plan for things to go wrong and be ready to survive it before you try and cut your safety lines. You know, if you're going to cut your own safety lines, make sure you're tethered to someone else who has a safety line. Yeah. Is what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, okay. Well, everyone I mean, that that's great advice. Uh, I have to agree on that. Uh, it's always better to have, you know, a safety net just in case. So go out, pick up *The Midnight Front*. It's a fantastic uh, story of magic elements and so much more to come than just a World War II story. Uh, if you haven't, well, you'll you'll see the cover and you'll just you'll want to pick it up. Um, but if you haven't read any of David's other stuff, uh, just do a Google search. Every Star Trek novel he's ever written will will pop up. Especially if you're a Star Trek fan, you'll love it. Um, Just don't
1: confuse me with the artist, the comic book artist. I'm not the comic book artist.
0: Yeah. So you know, I just want to say thank you for coming on the show and taking some time out of your day to talk about this book. Uh, Again, folks, it's the dark arts novel, uh, The Midnight Front, and the second book will be out in winter of 2019. So you'll be able to read this and then get the next one next year. Um, So, again, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Hey, thanks for letting me eat up some of your bandwidth. I appreciate it.
0: All right. Well, everyone, pick up the book. Uh, help support David by uh, showing Tor that, uh, that you want more books. Because, uh, you know, three is great, pre- but six is be better. Pre Yes.
1: Pre orders. It's all about the pre orders.
0: Yes. So, uh, with that said, we're out of here. Thanks, man. All right. Well, thank you for your time.